0: everyone. Welcome to episode 45 of the Data Driven Strength podcast. Today, myself, Josh Pelland, and uh my guy, Zach Robinson, who's laughing at me because that's the first time we've actually said our names at the start of the show. Uh, But Zach, I was reflecting on that the other day. I was like, we never say our names. So pe- people could have been listening to the show for a while and just have no idea who's talking. Do you have anything to say?
1: Yeah, I mean, that was that was like a an aggressive used car salesman pitch right there. That was, that was really solid. Let's, uh, let's keep it rolling Yeah. Here.
0: The next thing I'm going to sell you on is to subscribe to the training takeaway newsletter. Um, we'll make sure that's the first what a link.
1: segue. We'll
0: we'll make sure that's the first link. Um, it's completely free. Um, terms and conditions apply, but you can go ahead and, and sign up. We'll send you good stuff every other week straight to your inbox. Um, as you might be able to tell, we have a little bit more energy for this podcast. We're, we're recording this a little bit earlier in the morning than we typically do. So for that reason, we actually don't need a warm up question as we typically do. Um, and it's also early enough in the morning that we didn't have time to pick a warm up question and think about it and talk about it for a little bit. So uh, we're going to dive right into our discussion today. Uh Kind of, uh, we'll we'll quickly go over the most recent newsletter that we sent out um, regarding progressive overload and, and progression strategies. And as always, like we do in the podcast, just you know, open it up to a more open ended discussion and, and hopefully make it as practical as possible for you guys. Um, otherwise, before I let Zach read me in here, uh, as always, um, you know, if you're able to leave a rating and review on. Um, Apple Podcasts and or Spotify. That would be much appreciated. You can also check out the description for any studies that we uh, mention, as well as the products and services that we offer. We typically don't um, go out of our way to advertise one-on-one coaching, um, but I will say just to podcast listeners that this is a good time of the year to inquire if you are interested because we're coming to the end of an academic semester Um, as people that might have applied recently know, we, we are typically having to waitlist people, but given some of our additional time as data collection wraps up for the fall semester, that's a really good time to onboard people. So if you apply, we have a conversation, we think it'll be a good fit. This is a great time of the year to do so. Um, so yeah, with those plugs out of the way, um, I'll kick it over to you, Zach, and let you kind of introduce the topic and then we'll go from there.
1: Yeah, so I'm excited for this one. Um, this one, uh, Josh recently spearheaded the, the newsletter, um, kind of investigating a new study that looked at different progression schemes and how that influences strength and uh, gains in muscle size. Um, so this is going to be a really discu- good discussion. I think there's a quite a bit of nuance with this study, although it seems pretty simple on the surface. I think there's quite a few things we can go down in terms of rabbit holes here. Um, after we can kind of summarize the, the main findings there. But um, with that um, uh, kind of summary, Josh, go ahead, and take it away, and let's discuss different progression strategies for uh, strength training.
0: Awesome, man. Um, so, yeah, this is a we'll, – we'll, we'll quickly review a new study by Plotkin and colleagues, um, so we'll make sure that's linked in the description as well. Um, before I get to kind of summarizing that study and its findings and, and you know some more conversation around this study itself – um, I think it's important to just make sure we're all on the same page of why we even need to progress training in the first place and just, again, kind of set that foundation. So ultimately, kind of the first thing you learn when I'm sure we all got into lifting is, is the concept of progressive overload. Um, as I think the years have, have gone on, especially in recent years, that understanding of progressive overload has has much improved. And, and as we've credited before, uh, Brian Miner has done an awesome job kind of conceptualizing that. I think it's one of those things where he articulates something really well that we people kind of thought of, but he just like hit the nail on the head. And I still return to that ar- article regularly and send uh, people that way as well. Um, so, so props to Brian Miner as always for for doing such a great job there. Um, but basically, the the way I think we should think about progressive overload is that once you adapt to a training stimulus, you must add more of something. So if you have a an adequate training stimulus and your environment is quote unquote permissive. So you are sleeping enough to allow gains to happen. You're eating enough to allow gains to happen. That kind of encapsulates a permissive environment. When you have those things, adaptation occurs, right? Um, we could do a whole podcast on the specific adaptations um, that, that can occur, right? We have uh, muscle growth. We have different types of muscle growth. Um, based on the exact exercise, the the joint angles, et cetera. We have structural changes um, and functional changes all the way from the the mo- motor cortex to the, the 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 motor neuron. Um so there's a ton going on, but if we just think of adaptation all as one, okay, now we're stronger, now we're able to handle more in order to ensure that the relative training stress is as high for the next session or the next block or whatever the case may be, once those adaptations have occurred. We need to add something, right? If just very basically, if you're able to squat 200 pounds for 10 reps, you can't do that indefinitely and expect to make meaningful, meaningful progress, right? Um, So the next question is, um, what do we add, right? And does that change based on maybe where we're at in a training year, um, what the goal of a training block is, what the goal of a set is, et cetera. Um, And this, this is a study that I wouldn't, I don't think I would have thought of designing But I thought it was a good one because I think we just kind of take it for granted that you just have to add something, right? Um, Like people will kind of just list out all training variables when they're like, for progressive overload, you need to add load, reps, or you can increase training density, you can add frequency. Um, But again, none of that stuff has actually been experimentally investigated. So this is the first time, uh, to my knowledge, that this has been experimentally investigated. There has been one other study that we might talk about later later. Um, if it kind of works out well, that did a secondary analysis of progression methods. Um, but it, that wasn't a truly experimental design. It was kind of like a, a post hoc, uh, uh, analysis of some previous data. So anyway, first time this question has actually been looked at, which I think is, is, it's kind of surprising when you actually think about it, um, because it's so fundamental to resistance training, you know, basics. Right. Um, so with that, let's get into the study design a little bit. So 38 subjects, um, mixed sex sample here, Um, they were trained, but they weren't uh, very strong or very well experienced with the squat. Some of the subjects um, weren't squatting going into the study um, and some subjects were. So that's important to keep in mind, especially when we get to the strength findings. Um, And there was a load progression group and a repetition progression group. Um, So both groups in that first session, they performed sets of eight to 12 to failure in the, again, in that first session, then from there, where what they tried to add as they adapted was different. In the load progression group, they tried to add load. In the rep progression group, they tried to add reps. Um, since all sets in both groups were taken to failure, that's kind of a nice way of like a nice kind of fail safe in this design, assuming the, the failure was, was executed properly. Um, and, and based on the manuscript, I definitely think that was the case. Um, and... Yeah, so basically you can think of the the uh, load progression group of doing sets of about 10 to failure and adding load whenever they, they thought they could. And then the rep progression group stayed at the same weight they used in that first session and just added reps and basically used the same exact load every single set since they were taking it to failure. They just got as many as they could, and that's how they, they progressed, right? Um, so in terms of the actual training program, I'm just going to focus on the quad related training. They did look at, um, the calves as well, but I think the concepts are kind of similar here. So I'm just going to put the calf stuff to the side, um, and just talk about the quads. Um, so they trained twice a week and it was the same session each, each time. Um, and in each session they did four sets of barbell squats and four sets of leg extensions. Um, so eight sets per session twice a week. So they train the quads 16 sets per week. Um, now in terms of the actual outcome measurements, they looked at both hypertrophy and strength. Um, the hypertrophy, uh, was assessed with ultrasound. So a nice direct measurement of hypertrophy. And they took a lot of measurements, um, of the quads, which is a pro and a con. And I mentioned this in the, in the, the newsletter, it's a con in that some things might pop up that, uh, people reviewing the research like ourselves might look into a little bit too much. So I want to be cautious that some of the stuff that did kind of seem to emerge with hypertrophy stuff just might happen when you have a lot of measurements and generally small sample research. To be clear, this was a really good sample um, in exercise science, but just in general, exercise science isn't super, super big samples. Um, But I definitely think the pros outweigh the cons and that we can actually start to look at like differences in, in regional hypertrophy. As a bit of an aside, this is something we Uh, we've been talking about for a while with the proximity to failure research that we're really interested in is like, yeah, we can really only extrapolate the findings of how close to failure you should train to the actual sites measured, right? Um, If we're just looking at one spot in the chest comparing, let's just say, hypothetically, six RPE to, to failure, right? That only generalizes to that site on the chest, what's going on at other sites on the chest, what's going on at the triceps, Um, We know that loading demands can shift throughout a set to failure. So those are important things to keep in mind. The same concept applies here um, based on different progression methods that might affect different muscles or different sites along those muscles differently, right? Um, Which is something we'll we'll probably get into in a little bit once we talk about the outcomes. Um, So I'll try to keep the measurements very simple. Um, There were basically three sites, one more proximal, so one closer to the hip, one more distal, so closer to the knee, and then one in between those kind of on the anterior part of, of the thigh, so kind of the front quad you can think about. Um, and then the there were also three measurements, again, uh, proximal, middle, and distal, more laterally. Um, so that more anterior measurements, that was looking at the total thickness of the vastus intermedius and the rectus femoris, whereas the lateral um, sites were looking at um, the sum thickness of the vastus intermedius and the vastus lateralis. Um, I put some links to some other papers that had nice images of these because I think it's, it's very helpful to see what those images actually look like because um, we kind of just talk about these methods but may not actually truly conceptualize them. So that might be worth, um, again, clicking the, the link in the description and checking those out. Um, so yeah, that is the general study design. Oh, really quickly for strength. Um, just one or back squat, um, seemed to be a, a, sound, um, approach there, but importantly, the training, um, was on, um, the training was on a barbell squat, but the actual test of one RM was on a Smith machine, which is going to be important when we talk about the results here in a second. So that is the general study design. Zach, I'll just pause here quickly. See if you have any questions or anything you think was unclear. Nope. All right. Sweet. I had about uh, half a second to catch my breath. Awesome. So let's talk about the results. Um, before we get to the results, let's quickly talk about their statistical approach, and I think this is interesting, and I, I really liked it. I, I thought it was, I thought it led to um, probably a more, a more appropriate interpretation than how people typically read research, or at, at the very least, I think it makes this study less subject to being misinterpreted. Um, so typically, when you hear research, you typically just hear in like a binary fashion, right? There was a difference or there wasn't a difference. And this is helpful, right? Because we want to make conclusions and we want to generalize these conclusions um, to future research or to um, practice, right? But there are definitely some, some, some drawbacks to that, um, and for that reason these uh, authors decided to take a different approach and instead they reported estimated differences between groups and a confidence interval around that estimate. So let's use the squat one rep max gains as an example. So basically what they reported is a two kilogram uh, point estimate in favor of the load progression group. So what that means is that the data they collected once they accounted for the covariates, um, one being sex and the other being Um, baseline strength levels, Um, the data support that um, the load progression approach increases squat one rep max in additional two kilos more than the rep progression approach, right? However, there is also an associated confidence interval with that. So because, you know, if you were to theoretically take random samples from the population we care about, there's going to be varying results there's statistical approaches to say, okay, how are like, if, if we were to theoretically do that a bunch of times, um, where would the, uh, kind of average of the averages end up and kind of create a 90% confidence interval, um, around where that average of averages would actually end up. That's, that's what gives you the the 90% confidence interval. So that can kind of tell you how confident you can be in that point estimate of two kilos, greater gains in the load progression group. And that confidence interval, ranged from 7.8 kilos greater gains in the, the load progression group um, all the way to 2.4 kilo greater gains in the other group, in the rep progression group. So yes, 1RM strength leaned slightly in favor of the load progression approach, um, but that confidence interval, that 90% confidence interval, it crossed to zero. So it could be a whole lot of nothing, or it could be a little bit of something going on. Um, but in short, the, the main takeaway is squat one or M progression or strength gains, um, slightly favored that load progression approach. So those are the, the strength findings. Now let's get into the hypertrophy findings. So, um, I'm just going to focus on kind of the sum of the hypertrophy taken on the anterior quad and the sum of the hypertrophy taken on that lateral quad. So if we think about the lateral quad first. Basically a whole lot of nothing. The between groups point estimate was right at zero millimeters. So basically no leaning either way by any means. And if you visually look at the plots I included in the newsletter, you can see they look almost identical. Um, Now, when we look at the anterior quad, things get a little bit more interesting. Um, So the between groups point estimate was 2.8 2.8 millimeters in favor of the rep progression group. So in other words, the data kind of support that, um, the rep progression group will lead to 2.8 millimeters, uh, more hypertrophy in those, when you sum those anterior quad sites, um, in the rep progression approach compared to the load progression approach. However, when we go back to that confidence interval concept, it did cross zero, um, but barely. So it ranged from Uh, 0.5 millimeters more growth in the load progression group, all the way up to 5.8 millimeters, uh, more hypertrophy in the rep progression group. So it's really hard to say, right? Um, I would, I feel pretty confident saying the results leaned in favor of the rep progression group for the anterior quad. So for the rectus femoris, uh, plus the vastus intermedius on kind of the front of the quad. Um, but it isn't necessarily overwhelming or I wouldn't overstate those findings. Um, So that is the general um, outcomes here. Basically both progressing reps and both progressing load um, are effective strategies for strength and hypertrophy, but the strength gains leaned in favor of the load progression group and the anterior quad leaned in favor of the rep progression group. Um, I think kind of contextualizing those findings a little bit is the, the right next step here, which is what we'll do. But, Again, Zach, I'll pause and, and see if you have any any questions or anything you think was unclear. No,
1: I think you did a really good job. As you mentioned, I think this type of uh, this type of approach, I think, just leads to considerably more nuanced um, interpretation, which I think is just a huge benefit. Basically, taking away those those you know the generally the the p values and, and stuff like that, it can basically lead you to disregarding certain outcomes, and then also potentially um, Over relying on significant outcomes that may not actually be meaningful differences, yet they, uh, for a variety of reasons, could pop a a, you know significant p value. Um, So just overall, I just think this approach is really really cool. Um, The immediate thing that I I was wondering now, based on some discussions we've had, I don't know if we've talked about this. I went back and checked the um, typical error associated with the ultrasound measurements in the Damas study um, that we talk about, and that was one point three eight percent um, of CSA. Now I'm trying to go and check what the average gain in CSA was here. Um, and that would be something I'll calculate while oh. you're speaking next. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll fill the d- air just, with something. Just ultimately what I'm, what I'm thinking there. Oh, sorry. Yeah. W- just, let me just say basically what I'm thinking there is that another, you know, thing to take into account that the statistical approach already does a really good job of, but, um, if that change in muscle size between groups is within or close to that error of measurement, it somewhat, you know, would maybe give us a little bit less confidence in that being a quote unquote real difference, even a little bit more. But nonetheless, I still think that this approach does a really good job. As Josh said, the associated confidence interval crosses zero. Thus the, you know, the idea is that um, that could be a whole lot of nothing as, as Josh said. Um, and, and given how many sites were kind of null, um, something, something to keep in mind there, but, um, but yeah, other, other than that, I think this, like I said, study simple in, in concept, but I think it has some interesting implications, um, you know, as we kind of break it down further, but I'll let you, uh, take it over there and I'll try to see if I can calculate this real quick.
0: Sweet. Yeah. Um. I thought the stats on this were were really good, and they did a great job reporting all of the. I believe they reported all the raw data. They also, as a supplementary file, they included a leave one out sensitivity analysis, um, which is awesome. So, if you for the super nerds out there, if you, um, it's an open access paper. So, if you scroll all the way down on that link, um, there is a link to a leave one out sensitivity analysis. And part of the reason the rectus femoris hypertrophy stuff, um, or the 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 slight slightly more hypertrophy in the rep progression group for the rectus femoris uh, plus vastus intermedius on that anterior quad. I, I almost took a little bit more seriously is because the leave one out sensitivity analyses didn't really change anything very much. So like if you have an outlier and someone like just grew a ton, especially when you're doing a between subjects study, meaning like it's not like one leg is assigned to one group and the other leg is assigned to another. That whole person is assigned to one group. For whatever reason, they just respond and grow like crazy. And then you do a leave one out sensitivity analysis and you see that basically makes the the findings null or just nothing really worth caring about. That wasn't really the case here. If you look at that leave one out sensitivity analysis, nothing really changes a ton. So again, take it with a grain of salt. But I think including supplementary files like this and I almost want to say like leaving the results up to interpretation or up to like the reader to kind of determine what they think is meaningful, etc., um, while providing as much context as possible is just an awesome way to go with science. So, uh, for the super nerds out there, I think, you know, looking at, um, the, the supplementary files is, is really cool here. So on that point of the rectus femoris hypertrophy, um, let's, let's dive into that a little bit. Cause, um, I think that's the most interesting thing. We'll probably touch on strength as well here. Um, but, but let's talk about that since we're on the topic. Um, so ultimately, any I think that any differences here between groups is really just the result of different rep ranges as opposed to different uh, progression strategies per se, just because at the end of the day, they're both doing sets of, you know, s- sets to failure um, on the same exercises and what they do week to week, I just don't see how that would really uh, influence things beyond where they end up, right? Because by the end of the study, we we they reported the data as, again, a supplementary file um, showing the average rep performance um, of that rep progression group in their final session. So you can basically see how many reps they added throughout the study. And for the leg extension, for example, um, they finished um, sets uh, with sets of about fifteen reps. So they basically added about five reps over the course of the the eight week study. Um, and ultimately to me, I think the fact that they were doing sets of about 15 versus sets of about 10 is much more of a difference than how they actually progressed week to week. Now you might think that the sets of 10 versus sets of 15 doesn't sound like a big difference, but keep in mind that the rep drop-off is going to be very big, especially in that rep progression group. So they also reported the average, um, average reps of set one, set two, set three, set four for the leg extension. And I don't have it right in front of me, but set one was like, I believe 20 plus, but then it eventually dropped off as fatigue set in, um, from those high rep sets. So that's important to keep in mind. They were getting some exposure to sets above 20 reps, whereas that load progression group was basically around like that eight 12 range, almost entirely. Zach, I see you unmuted yourself. So I don't know if you have something.
1: That was an accident. Whoops.
0: Okay, cool. Um, so basically my 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 thought here is it's interesting that we might see varying hypertrophy from different rep ranges um and some people might push back against that just because it's it's pretty well established now that when you look at the the meta-analytic data a wide range of reps can lead to similar hypertrophy right um people are like yeah as long as you train 5 to 30 reps you're going to be good to go you're going to maximize hypertrophy um but I would push back against that a little bit and just say there might be cases where that's that's not the case, especially with multi-joint movements. Reason being is loading demands can shift. So um, I don't know if this is the case. I don't even know if this finding um, of the rectus femoris being slightly uh, having slightly more growth in the rep progression group or the higher rep group is actually like it could just be a, like a false positive. But let me just go through a quick hypothetical. as as an example of how this might matter. So we know from uh, some some biomechanical data that um, with later loads, just to to make this as simple as possible, squats are generally more quad dominant. So in other words, the hip extension demands are lower. Um, So if you're doing sets with like 60% of your one RM, the quads seem to be pretty well tapped in, whereas the hip extensors, at least on average, aren't aren't, aren't involved quite as much, but that changes as you get to heavier loads. Um, and we also know that the rectus femoris is, um, it's a quad muscle. So it, it does extend the knee, but it also crosses the hip. So it is also a hip flexor. So if it's a hip flexor, its activation actually, it, it, it opposes hip extension. But if you're using light loads and the hip extension demands are lower, then it might be able to contribute a little bit more to knee extension at those lighter loads, right? Right. Um, So, so the basic idea is that, Hey, if the rep progression, uh, group is training with higher reps and thus lighter loads or lighter percentages of their one rep max, then the rectus femoris may have contributed to that more quad dominant squat and thus received a greater hyper, uh, hypertrophic stimulus, right. And thus grew a little bit more. Again, I don't know if that's true. Uh, the authors also had a slightly different explanation. Um, it could be due to within set fatigue. Um, so basically like, um, like the, the force output, um, at the end of a set of, of 20 to failure is going to be, uh, much lower than the force output at the end of a set of 10 to failure. So maybe things shift around there, right? Maybe the, the vast eye muscle. So the other quad muscles, um, you know, once there's high fatigue, start to shift the demands towards the rectus femoris, which is a slightly different potential explanation than I gave. But again, the the point is, is that in these multi-joint movements with the loading demand shifting around, um, rep range might matter for hypertrophy. And there's actually some other research on this as well, Um, or or at least other research to indicate that uh, rep range can make a difference for hypertrophy, I should say. So there's a study from uh, Schoenfeld and colleagues from 2020 looking at calf muscle growth, and um if you it's a within subjects design and they looked at different uh, rep ranges, so so low versus high rep ranges. And on average, uh rep range led to or, or the, the two different rep ranges led to very similar muscle growth. However, some individuals responded way better to higher reps, uh, and some individuals responded way better to lower reps. Um so it could just be a matter of some people grow more from from higher reps, some people grow more from from less reps. So anyway, that is, um, a lot of speculation, but the main take home here is that let's not be so quick to say that sets of five to 30, just across the board, always maximize hypertrophy for all muscles involved. It might be that for specific muscles in certain movements, different rep ranges are more appropriate. Um, so Zach, I see you nodding your head. Do you have any, any thoughts or do you think I'm off base? What do you think?
1: Uh, First, first thing, just after very rough calculations, I, I would, um, based on the kind of the way they did the measurement error in that DeMoss study, which was the anything within two typical measurement errors of the ultrasound scans, they considered like, eh, maybe not something that's like totally real finding, very rough calculation. This would be within that two measurement error, but above one measurement error. So right on that line, pretty much exactly what you said, like, definitely something to be interested in. And I think again, overall the way that they communicated things is exactly appropriate with some degree of uncertainty around it. would love to see this replicated, but it's like right on that line of measurement error, just based on um, some rough calculations. But anyway, um, coming back to the, to the discussion around the distribution of, of kind of the loading demands based on the repetition range. This is something I, like when I was reading your, your draft on this, I was, going back and reflecting on this. And I think this is something that's really, really interesting to explain a lot of anecdotes. Um, that because that, that's like one of the things I'm most interested in is like taking these anecdotes from experienced lifters and trying to make them all kind of cohesively make sense. Um, you know, we have some people that are very much in the camp of sets of 10 to 30 grow you way more than lower reps, but you have, you know, an equal number of people that are on the opposite end of things that are very much in the sense that heavy loads are the way that you're going to grow muscle the most efficiently. Um, and obviously if you take kind of a step back and look at the landscape of anecdotes there, in addition to the research that we have, it kind of seems like everything has a place. And so when you started, you know, writing about this stuff, it really started making me think. Like, this is a potential explanation of why people seem to quote unquote respond better to different loading ranges and different proximities to failure. Because, um, you know, if we come back to this way that we'd generally have been navigating towards viewing strength, um, of like there is some limiter in, in the performance. Generally speaking, you know, there could be other things, but we like to focus on the muscular limiter. Um, that very well could be why certain loading ranges, certain repetition ranges and certain proximities to failure seem to just be better for certain people because they distribute the loading demands in the places that they need it the most. And so somebody that has a quad strength limiter in the squat, maybe they do find that higher repetition ranges closer to proximities of failure, farther from failure, either way, I haven't really thought about that too much, but some sort of consistent pattern is drawn. And maybe that's not necessarily because there's an inherent thing to the loading range or the inherent thing to the proximity to failure, but rather that is just a consequence of the exercise that they are performing that distributes that loading pattern to the place that they need it the most. Um, And I think the same thing can be said on the opposite end of like somebody that maybe is a little bit more hip extension limited. They find themselves doing really well with like a, um, a really heavy program where you're doing a bunch of sets of three and stuff like that. Um, where the loading demands are kind of put in an opposite direction with those heavier loads. So I just thought that was a really interesting thing that I kind of need to reevaluate on how that makes me, once again, view the whole individualization problem because now maybe that's another lever that we pull. Obviously, there's still going to be situations purely based off logistics. You're not going to do sets of three on leg extensions or lateral raises, but you know, for the most part, that is something I think that potentially needs a little bit more thought in terms of like, while there are logistically feasible repetition ranges within that range, maybe we bias in one direction versus the other based on the strength limiter or the physique um, target area that we really wanna focus on. So, you know, if we're trying to develop um, quadriceps and we're going to include some free weight movements, maybe we are sticking in that higher repetition range if we really want to focus on the quads to drive up our 1RM squat, or if we're using that movement to really drive just the overall um, stimulus for hypertrophy for our, for our quads purely for physique related purposes. Um, that is something that I think is a very interesting nugget out of this that I think um, ultimately something I need to think more about. But this, this, your right up here did a really good job of sparking those kind of thoughts in my head. And I think that once again can kind of help to align many of the different anecdotes that kind of go across the the spectrum of experienced lifters um, to kind of unite things in one of more of like a cohesive picture, which is I think is what we're ultimately always after to help individualize training as, as efficiently as possible. And if we understand what we're ultimately kind of going for, then we can view all the, all the data, both the research and anecdotes um, to kind of try to make that all make sense. But I think you did a really good job of sparking some ideas for me there. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I think it kind of takes our, our general framework for strength limiters, but takes it one step further. So it's like an easy example that comes to mind for me are RDLs. So subjectively, if you're loading up RDLs in the the six to eight rep range, yes, the the limiter is going to be hip extension, whether it's the six to eight rep range, or the 12 to 15 rep range. But subjectively, the the hip extension muscles that it is primarily challenging will be different. So same idea in this study, right? The rectus femoris and the vasti muscles, they're all knee extensors, but it might be that rep range influenced which of the knee extensors took more or less of of the the loading demands and thus the hypertrophic stimulus. Same idea with the RDLs. Subjectively, uh, this seems pretty generalizable, but maybe other people have different experiences with heavier RDLs, the glutes and the, 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 uh, lumbar extensors seem to get a little bit more love, whereas the hamstrings seem to get a little bit more love with higher rep or lower load, um, RDLs, but they're both hip extension limited, but within hip extension, different rep ranges might influence the, the primary muscles taking the brunt of that load, um, a little bit. So I think it kind of takes that strength limber thing we've talked about on the podcast multiple times, takes it one step further. And I think it's something to, to keep an eye on. Um, in general.
1: Yeah, and I think that makes sense because ultimately probably what's happening is is the the more that you increase the load, the less you can specifically maintain a very disadvantageous position for one joint. So if I'm very particularly trying to stay upright in high bar squat or a plat squat or something like that, where I'm very much trying to drive in my quads, the heavier in load that I go the more likely I am to try to distribute those loading demands as evenly as possible to try to efficiently complete the task. Whereas if it's light enough, I can basically intentionally make it inefficient. And so that, that to me is, is like I said, an interesting thing, which I think is the same thing with RDLs. You can very specifically keep your knees straight hip, you know, all the way back. But as soon as you start to introduce increased loading, there comes a point where you're kind of going to turn into a deadlift regardless to try to, um, complete the task, which I think, again, can be an advantage or disadvantage depending on the situation. But yeah, I, th- I think that that is probably the biggest thing I, I got from this newsletter and this this study in particular, just something to continue thinking about that, hey, there does seem to be a little bit of indication here that those higher reps could have been better. Now, like you said, I don't necessarily think it's the progression method per se, but it leads to some differential effects in terms of the repetition ranges that they train at, which to me is indicating potentially differences in execution of the exercise, which is important to know for, for individualization. So, um, so yeah, I think that that's, that's probably the most interesting nugget here for sure.
0: Cool. Right on. Um, so we, we primarily focus on rep range because I think that's appropriate for the reasons I mentioned, but let's finish up here. I'm going to quickly. Discuss the strength findings and then talk about actual progression methods, um, and then we'll we'll probably be a, a, at a good spot to wrap up. So, as I mentioned, not a whole lot going on in terms of differences between groups in in strength outcomes, um, which was honestly pretty pretty surprising. Because if you look at the final training session, um, the load progression group was training with an average of eighty four percent of their the one or M they were would eventually hit like shortly after in the post-testing session. And the rep progression group was training with 62%. So it's like, I just don't understand how that's possible. But then you you dive a little bit deeper. And um, I think it, it kind of makes sense. Um, as I mentioned before, the actual testing was done on a Smith machine, whereas the training was done on a barbell squat. Arguably the Smith machine has less of a skill component and any skill component they did get from barbell squatting might not have transferred as well, if that makes sense. So the, the skill adaptations weren't able to actually express themselves in the post-testing. Also the average squat one or M at pre-testing was like 80 kilos. So they just might not have been strong enough or or well-trained enough in the squat to really benefit from greater specificity through greater loads. As we talked about on a recent podcast, um, there's probably a, a weaker relationship between percentage of one RM and strength gains in the less trained populations. Not a ton of research on that, but seems to be a little bit of indication in the research that that's the case. Um, so honestly, I'm pretty comfortable, even given uh, the the lack of research here, that load progression is probably going to be the way to go for strength. I think that um, if we were to kind of create like a, a tier of like, what are the most important variables to prioritize for short to moderate term strength development? I think per load or percentage of 1RM is, is number one. I think things might be a little bit different. If you're very far out from a strength test, you're really, you're t- purposely taking a break from heavy loads, but otherwise I would lean into load progression, um, for, uh, strength focused work. Um, and then for hypertrophy focused work, I think you can go either way. However, um, or at least on average, right? We talked about some of the potential benefits that, that there could be for specific muscles if you manipulate rep range um, and you can manipulate rep range via progression method. But I think overall, it doesn't really matter how you get to a certain protocol for hypertrophy. However, I think a more rep progression based model probably has practical benefits, right? Like if you're just staying at sets of 10 and, and you're you're not taking things to failure, Um, then, and, and you, you're trying to, you know, before you actually go into the set, predict how much load you can add for a set of 10, that's just really hard to do. It's way easier to just either use the same load as last week, or maybe bump it up a little bit, and then just stop at the desired RPE. Essentially, you're doing rep progression right there, right? And then you can also combine that rep progression with load progression and do kind of a double progression. So if you have a rep range, you stop at the desired RPE or RAR. And then once you're hanging out at the top of that rep range, you can add some load. Um, So that would be my general recommendations um, for progression methods is lean into load progression for um, sets aimed at strength development. And then for hypertrophy, I think we have more options, but I think there's going to be practical benefits from rep progression. Um, At the very end of the newsletter, I have what I think is, is hopefully a helpful graphic to kind of show you some examples of this. I also include... Um, what we like to call artificial progression, which I think we'll skip over here. Um, but that's kind of like more of a proactive adjustment to the protocol as opposed to a progression that is the result of adaptations. But again, I talk about that in the newsletter. And the last thing I'll point out with progression methods is, as always, just like with any other topic we talk about, it's not one or the other, right? You can even within the same exercise, do maybe a a load progression for a top set on a squat or a bench press or whatever, and then maybe, uh, the back offsets are a true rep progression or kind of that double progression approach, um, that I just explained. So that's kind of the the main takeaways I would give for actual progression methods. But I think this discussion about rep range and how it influences hypertrophy of of certain muscles is something to keep an eye on. And, um, yeah, just kind of keep in the back of your mind and and maybe be a little bit more skeptical when you just kind of say, Hey, choose the, choose the rep range you want, because it's all going to lead to the same growth. I'm not comfortable saying that quite yet. Again, there's some research indicating that different rep ranges seem to just be better for different people. There's at least a couple studies I'm aware of. And then there's also this study um, and also some acute data that I think we might be able to extrapolate to indicate that rep range, especially in multi-joint movements, might influence where the loading demands are going. So um, yeah, that's kind of all I got. Zach, do you, you have anything else? Nope. All right, sweet. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll see you in a couple of weeks for episode 46. Um, If you haven't already, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and or Spotify, and we'll see you next time. Take care.
1: Thanks, guys.